You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. With me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1-2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Father, uh, um, Father I ask that you would come now in a special way uh, and speak through your word to us. Or just on reading this passage, um, I feel a certain uneasiness in my soul and in my heart as I think about the implications of this passage, the meaning of this passage, and the various ways in which the church, I think, has probably abused this passage over the years. So Father, come and help me to be uh, faithful to you, uh, honoring to you in your word and uh, helpful to your people. Uh, Father, I pray that you would remove anything in my heart or in our midst, um, in our hearts collectively as a church family, um, that would cause us uh, to not hear what you would say here. (coughs) Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that would desire to hear from you. Give us minds that would desire to understand what you would say. Give us eyes that would see what you are doing in your word. Father, I pray that you would do those things knowing that I and we are severely limited. We are human, yet you, Father, are not limited. With you, there is no limitation whatsoever. So we ask, God, that you would just bring your unlimited presence into our midst. Do a work of change, transformation, preach your word. Trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, everybody said so this is a fun passage, right? Hmm. My plan today is to do three things. So if you're kind of an outliner, um, like me, if you're a little bit of an outliner, I plan to do three things. Uh, first, uh, I want to uh, kind of deal with the, the elephant in the room in regards to the topic of this text, which is Paul's apparent ignorance of the horrors of slavery. Kind of the way I've said it, just apparent ignorance. When you read that, you go... Dude's a little off in the head, maybe. Okay, so I want to deal with that elephant. Um, and then number two, want to explain what I, what I think Paul is saying here. It's important for us to get to what Paul is actually saying. Uh, and then my third goal uh, for us is to just kind of take all of that, tie it together in a neat, tidy little bow, if there's anything neat and tidy about being under the shadow of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb. That's where I want to land us. Um, Someone once said, start with the text, make a beeline for the cross. That's what I'm hoping to do um, throughout our time. Uh, Pray that God uses it uh, in in your heart. The message of the gospel, shift gears there for a moment. You think about the message of the gospel. It, it uh, It is a message that is explicitly focused on 
our broken and sinful state, right? Um, explicitly focused on that in light of and in sharp contrast with the absolutely perfect and absolutely powerful work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. We learned over the Easter season, many of us remember and know, and, and uh, with all of our ounces of energy, hold on to that truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that, we trust that, we believe that if we're in Christ this morning. Amen? Uh, that the power of Satan, the power of sin, the power of the grave has been vanquished. Vanquished. Our old slave master, Satan, right? He's been defeated. The chains of sin have been broken. The plantation of death and the grave, they've been burned to the ground. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, we have hope. True hope, a real hope, an eternal hope. We hope in a kind of freedom, a specific kind of freedom, um, that is both life-giving now and, and eternal in, in nature. Um, regardless of what we've been through, regardless of where we've been, regardless of our current circumstances, this is kind of the simple message of the gospel. Um, you could sum all of this up um, in, in some way um, by, by looking at Galatians 3, 28. Um, I think the gospel is clear in this passage. We, we trust in the truth that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's, there is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a tricky passage, too. We're not going to spend much time there. Um, but the reality of that passage is that, that there is nothing that can stop you from coming into the presence of God except for you and your sins. It doesn't, doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or, or who you've been. It doesn't matter any of those things. Those are not barriers. What are barriers is you just refusing to step into the presence of God. No category that stops you from that. We know that about the gospel. But then we have to ask the question, like, what the heck is up with Paul's apparent um, ignorance of the horrors of slavery, right? Um, we know that there's no real distinctions here. Um, yet, Paul makes distinctions in 1 Timothy 6, 1-2. through So what, what's up with his... Um, apparent ignorance. Um, well, a quick reading of the text that we just read, right, um, could easily lead us, and I think have led many in the church um, to believe that Paul is in favor of slavery. Is that true? That's to be the question we've got to ask, right? <clears throat> he quite literally um, tells slaves in the Ephesian church, because Timothy is the pastor of the Ephesian church, um, one of the pastors there, Paul quite literally tells those slaves to do what? Honor their masters, respect their masters, serve their masters, and love their masters. <clears throat> what would be really nice is, is if, the, if this was like the only time Paul had ever done this. That would be nice, right? If this was the only time he had made statements such as this that are, uh, I catching. Um, but the problem is, is this isn't the first time, not the only time, uh, where you find him doing this. In his previous letter to the Ephesians, we studied through this last year, 
Uh, you might remember that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, um, he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. So even there, Ephesians 6, Paul is calling for an obedience um, to our earthly slave masters that is characterized by what? Fear, trembling, and sincerity. Literally instructing slaves to honor their slaveholders just as they would honor Christ. That's the literal language that he's using. You can't get around that. Um, He instructs us uh, not to obey only when the boss man is looking. Basically his instructions, right? Um, Instead, he wants us to serve from a pure heart that is full of good intentions, that, that desires to please God and not just to please man. Um, and there's a promise in that passage too from Ephesians that we just looked at. There's the promise in all that is that if a slave honors and obeys and respects his master, then that slave can bank on something. They can bank on the fact that somewhere in eternity that slave will receive a reward for his faithfulness. That's just sticking with the language, literal interpretation of what Paul is saying. And I have a problem with this. What I would admit to you is that the language is hard for me. It's mind-boggling to me. I'm the kind of guy who identifies really deeply with the downtrodden. Um, I take the side of the weak and the oppressed. As far as I can tell in all of my study of scriptures, we have a Father in heaven who has the same heart. I believe that our Father is absolutely horrified by any kind of institution of slavery. Whether that be the institution of slavery that we um, have in our country, that existed in our country, and in some form still exists. Um, A friend of mine that even says, hey, credit card debt's a form of slavery. (coughs) So what's up with this uh, apparent contradiction with Paul? What's going on here? Is there something unique, maybe? It would be a good question to ask as you're looking at the text, as you're thinking about Ephesus. Since we're studying 1 Timothy and we're thinking about that parallel passage in Ephesians, is there something special about Ephesus that, uh, that, that leads Paul to do this and to go this direction? Um, is there something special about those Ephesian people that causes Paul to give these kinds of instructions instead of instructing the church to rebel against slavery in some sort of maybe like a, uh, like a civil act of disobedience or, or, or how about civil protest? Why doesn't, why doesn't Paul do that? I think it's a fair question to ask, right? <coughs> uh, I think if you um, even move further, let's move outside of the Ephesian context, right? Uh, let's see if Paul does this in other contexts as well. Now move to the book of Philemon. Anybody ever read the book of Philemon? So the book of Philemon is a really short book, really short letter. Um, but just a quick glance at Paul's letter to uh, Philemon, um, who, who was a quote-unquote slave owner um, in, in Colossae, 
where he was at. He was not in Ephesus. He was in Colossae, which is a town near to Ephesus. But if you were to read that letter to Philemon, um, I, think, I think what you'll see is it seems to paint the picture of an Apostle Paul who is at least disinterested with abolishing the slave trade in the first century. It doesn't seem interested at all. In fact, his letter to Philemon is written on behalf of a runaway slave. His name is Onesimus. Onesimus ran away from Philemon and he stole something from him. But uh, the rest of the story is that he met Paul. Then he meets Jesus. becomes a Christian. Um, so now, Paul writes this letter to Philemon. And, and the interesting thing is he actually takes the letter that he writes to Philemon on Onesimus' behalf. So slave master, runaway slave, apparently. Okay? Uh, and Paul writes this letter to slave master and sticks it in the slave, runaway slave's hands and says, take that back to your slave master. This is the great apostle Paul. Okay? Now, when, when Paul writes this letter to Philemon, uh, he writes on behalf of Onesimus, the runaway. And, and what he does in that letter is he details his desire that Philemon would receive Onesimus back into his household as a brother rather than a slave. And there's a key there. As a brother rather than a slave. Now, he even offers to repay Philemon for any loss that he might have incurred in the whole ordeal. So, um, so as you read that, it doesn't appear to me that Ephesus is something special. Paul seems to take an interesting stance on the way that he engages as a God-fearing man with the topic and the issue of slavery. Agreed? <clears throat> he doesn't necessarily engage that in ways that you and I might expect him to. He doesn't necessarily engage that issue in ways that you might see the Christian church today engaging issues like this. I think that's fair. Agreed? Um, there's a question. Why handle the relationship between a slave owner and a runaway slave that way? Why? That's the question. Why send Onesimus back to Philemon? Why instruct slaves to obey their slave masters? Uh, why not write a letter condemning Philemon for owning another, another human like an inanimate object? Now, you're a Christian, bro. Like, why are you owning somebody? Why isn't that the letter that the great Apostle Paul wrote? <clears throat> uh, why not write a letter pontificating on the horrors of slavery? Why, why doesn't Paul see this situation as an opportunity to talk about how every human being is made in the image of God and therefore they deserve better than this? Why doesn't he do that? These are fair questions. These are questions that, um, if you spend time in the world today, are being asked. And I don't, here's the thing, I don't think Christians are answering these questions very well. I think the basic go-to answer for us, what do you think it is? The Bible says, so therefore I believe it. And to somebody who has questions about the Bible, somebody who has questions about your faith, that answer doesn't mean anything. So I think that part of our job as Christians is to be good missionaries and enter into the culture that we live in and be willing to answer the questions well. But the problem is, is it takes an awful lot of hard work to do that because you have to stay faithful to what the Bible says, right? And that's hard because this is a passage not many of us really want to deal with. 
I mean, the SBC is an entire denomination, the largest denomination in the world, I think, in America at least, um, got this wrong for a long time. For a long time. And they're not the only ones. The Puritans. Go back to the Puritans. Guys like Jonathan Edwards, some of my favorite theologians. These guys got it wrong. Now, um, back to the question, why? That was a bunny trail. Hopefully that was the Holy Spirit. Back to the questions about why. Like, uh, what's going on here? Um, There are some answers that I think are fair. Um, I don't think that we're going to be able to dissolve all of the tension here. I will just say that. There's still going to be tension with passages like this. Um, But I I think that there are two... answers that, that I think kind of get us in the right direction. One's a cultural answer. The other one is what I think is a biblical answer in terms of like uh, um, biblical theology. So I'm going to try to unpack two of those, those two, and um, hope it gives us something to think about. Hope that it's also um, um, good for your soul. So culturally, let's start there. Culturally, um, slavery in the first century where the church was being, uh, where the early church was being uh, planted and where it was sprouting, um, slavery in the first century was a bit different than the kind of slavery that we have in our history as Americans. Now, sometimes I hear that statement, and I go, that's just a blanket statement, and you're trying to like dismiss the fact that there was actual horror going on. I don't in any way want to do that. I just simply want to say I think that slavery then was a bit different than it was in our American history. In some ways, I think it was very much like an employer to employee, and in other ways, I actually think uh, the, um, the institution of slavery in that first, um, first century was actually far worse than probably what was experienced here in America. So I think what, what my point is, I think if you were to do a study, you'll find that there are a couple different kinds of streams of slavery going on, and it's a language thing too at the same time. They are definitely using the terms of bondservant and master and, uh, and slave and, and, uh, and master, um, they're definitely using those terms rather than employer and employee. Those terms didn't really exist. This was just the go-to. So that's why I think makes part of it so hard. Um, the other part of it that makes it hard is that some of the streams of slavery back then, in some terms, their slaves lived better than the slave masters, um, had, had, had more freedom than most people. Uh, someone who was not a bond servant, who was not a slave, was not contracted to anyone or tied to anyone for any kind of labor. They didn't have a contract where they were guaranteed a weekly paycheck. So those people who were called freedmen, typically in my understanding, uh, either um, lived kind of um, in the dark shadows, right, kind of crooks, a lot of them, uh, or lived way below the poverty line because they didn't have any guaranteed income. So again, language and culture I do think is a big part of this um, as we uh, study this. Now, from a biblical perspective, um, when we're trying to figure out uh, why the Bible doesn't appear to outright condemn slavery, or, or, or at least if it does seem to outright condemn it, it, it also seems to give some sort of license for it somehow. Like, it seems like there's an apparent contradiction. Okay? Um, and I can't do a ton of work on this today. I'm happy to have conversations with you about it. Um, um, but when we're trying to figure out why the Bible doesn't appear to just like 
outright condemn slavery and then and then from that point then encourage like social reform or or civil outrage i think i think we have to understand the purpose of the bible right like purpose of the bible just kind of like simple basic purpose now you may disagree with what i think the purpose of the bible is but then i'd have to challenge you to go back and read the bible and see why you would disagree that would be part of my challenge as i read the bible as i study it i i find that the bible it's not primarily a social reform handbook it's not it's not primarily the purpose of the bible i think we want to use the bible as a social reform handbook i don't think that's the primary purpose instead i believe God the Holy Spirit, through the biblical authors, remember rightly there's 40 of them. The Bible was written over the course of about 1,600 years. Um, 66 books in it. All of them kind of have a central theme. <clears throat> it's not like just a collection of articles. The central theme is to reveal or to introduce us to a loving and gracious and merciful Father against the backdrop of our own brokenness and our unfaithfulness and our slavery to sin. Slavery is actually a massive theme all throughout Scripture in many ways. If you were to study it out just thematically. Um, and then once the Bible reveals God as being loving and just and merciful and gracious and forgiving, all those things, once we begin to see that picture of our Father in light of all of our deficiencies and shortcomings and our sin. Once that revelation is made and your heart kind of leaps to life like, oh, there is a God and He is my Father and He does love me. I am really despicable and I'm rotten and I made a mess. Society is a mess because of all the people that are just like me. Once you kind of get to that point as you're studying the Bible, then I think... Um, God then seeks to call us into His presence, right? That's, that's the purpose of the Bible is that God would seek us, seek to call us into His presence where we can then be transformed into the image of Jesus, changed. So that in, once we are changed, we can then live in a redemptive and countercultural way in the midst of a broken world that we occupy. So in short... Uh, biblically speaking, I do not believe that God is primarily concerned with fighting so-called social justice battles. Though, it is highly biblical for Christian men and women to be engaged in working against social injustices such as sex slavery such as abortion, such as the list goes on and on and on. It's highly appropriate, and I think should be expected of us as Christians that we would be engaged in the kind of work that seeks to renew the world around us as we live out our faith, that would then, by default, cause a sort of a social reform. So I think what I'm arguing for is what I think think is a biblical view of what it means to be Christian in the midst of a society that is broken without making the broken society 
the point of my Christianity. Does that make sense? Where Jesus is the point of my Christianity, and the byproduct is that I'm engaged in society, and society is being transformed wherever I'm at, because the kingdom of God is here in us, right? I think, think as I read the Bible, that's what I see. I don't think that God is primarily concerned with fighting the so-called social justice battles. I think God is primarily concerned with His own glory being manifested through His children as He adopts us out of a world of slavery to Satan, sin, and death. And then after that, God is concerned with sanctifying the church family. Where people from every tribe, every ton, every nation live together in equality regardless of cultural, social, economic, or ethnic background, right? So, um, so that's just kind of the cultural and the biblical um, reasoning, I think, um, behind what we see in some of these texts that appear to be very contradictory, okay? So pause, take a drink of water, go. Hi, thank you. So that's just dealing with the elephant in the room, okay? So I'm going to move into number two, kind of leading me back to explaining the text we begin with. With all of that understanding, <clears throat> here are 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2, freshly. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So in short, Paul here in these verses instructs slaves to honor their masters by respecting them, serving them, and loving them. We could spend a lot of time just talking about what it means to honor someone, respect someone, serve someone, and love someone. I'm just going to make that statement that that's what Paul is telling these slaves to do and then kind of leave it up to you to search the Bible on what that means, right? Um, I think as we look at this, these two verses, I think we, we would notice that Paul is probably making a distinction between unbelieving masters in verse 1 and believing masters in verse 2, okay? Just pure, simple language. I mean, the, the easiest one there is that in verse 2, he says, those who have believing masters. So because he does that, it would appear then that verse 1 would be all about unbelieving masters. Um, but I think what he's concerned with in verse 1 is that a slave should honor that unbelieving master. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So do you have an unbelieving boss? Just know that if you are a Christian and you have an unbelieving boss, you are the primary vehicle through which God wants to reveal himself to that unbelieving boss. And the way that you behave, the way that you talk, the way that you act, the things that you do, the way that you show up for work on time or show up late speaks loudly about the God that you claim to trust. And it proves something to your boss about what Christ really came and did. And it proves something about the kind of person you really are if you claim to be Christian. Follow? So that's the unbelieving master in verse 1. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And then you look at verse 2. I mean, Paul is concerned again with a slave 
that should honor his believing master, respect him on the grounds, on the foundation, that you're brothers, you're, you're brothers in Christ. You should seek even more to honor a brother in Christ. The benefit that he's going to receive from your work is going to benefit the kingdom. And brothers are called to love each other. Now again, uh, as you hear this, as you wrestle with the simplicity of what Paul is saying, you, you have to put yourself in the Ephesian church gathering. You have to get your mind up out of the American church gathering and set yourself in the Ephesian church gathering for a moment. Not necessarily wildly different, but think that way. Because this was primarily written to the Ephesian church and her pastor. Two was written for us. Follow? So, if you, you pick yourself up and you set yourself down in the Ephesian church, um, that, that, that church culture, uh, there would have been people from various different backgrounds, right? So look around the room real fast, just in case you're falling asleep. Go ahead and take a look around. Different skin color, different age, different amounts of hair on heads and faces. Okay, uh, a, yep. And, um, and so the, we've got lots of different stuff happening here. We, different crowd of people, diverse would be a good word, correct? Okay. So there would be something similar to that in the Ephesian church. Um, people from various different backgrounds, different um, life circumstances, different current circumstances that they were dealing with, right? We got some people here today that are graduating kids. There's others of us that have already done that. Others of us that have never done that. I mean, just different, right? Lots of different people in the Ephesian church. Um, some of those folks would be bond servants. They are bound. They are contracted to someone in that church who is like a master. Actually called a master who is more like an employer. Okay? They were like an employer-employee relationship. Some of them were the bond servants. They were, they were bound to someone. Some of them were were masters. They had people they were responsible for, different ends of the spectrum. You got some freedmen. You got some people who just didn't have a job. They, they, didn't, they didn't, weren't getting a regular paycheck. So you got all sorts of different people there. Now what I can't imagine, so I wasn't there and I don't know, but I cannot imagine that there were any slaves and masters in the Ephesian church that would fit in the same category as the criteria that we have in our minds of the institution of slavery that existed in America. I can't even imagine that that existed in the Ephesian church. And there's, there's, there's nothing that tells me that it did. Did, it, did that uh, exist in the culture of Ephesus? Yes. I do not believe that that would have existed in the Ephesian church. Um, I, I, it would be hard for me to receive that. I haven't found any scholars that seem to say so either, just so you know. Um, so I think you look at that vast group of different people, <clears throat> what's Paul's concern? What's his concern? Why is he writing this? You put yourself in the author's shoes for a minute and think about, why, if I was Paul, why would I write this? Wait. I think Paul's concern, as I think about that question, his concern is that all of these different kinds of people would live in harmony with one another as they seek to worship their Savior and bring honor to the name of the God and, and, and the preaching of the gospel. 
Like, if you find yourself a church family that looks all like you, that, I'm sorry. Like, I think that in my younger years, as we begin to plant the well, I think I had this image in my head of what our church family would look like someday. And then as it began to grow, I became really um, displeased with it. And here's the reason why it didn't look like me. And once I realized that that was my issue, I was even more horrified. That really, Joe? Like what you were actually thinking about all these years that you would plant a church full of people that look and act and breathe and think and talk just like you? That, that's sick. Or you only need one of me. <laughs> Seriously. And, we, and the world only needs one of you too. And then we got old Joe. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Follow me? Like diversity is important. And diversity is also messy. Really messy. Especially when you have people like me that are highly opinionated. And I got lots of preferences. Oh, personal preference, of course. But I'm also much like to found in God's word, too. Like Jesus had a tattoo on his leg. Argue about that? See? Okay. Later. Talk about that later. So I think when Paul's looking at the Ephesian church, um, I think he's concerned that all of these people would worship their Savior and bring honor to the name of God and the preaching of the gospel. And, and people really are no different today than they were then. Um, we, we still struggle with the ways that our employers rule over us, don't we? Don't we all struggle with that at some point in time or another? Even if you're a self-employed person, you just means you have more employers, right? Like, I'm a pastor, so how many employers do you think I have? How many people are in this room? <laughs> so... We, we all struggle with em, employer-employee relationships in, in some way. <clears throat> we are bound to our earthly employers. Why? Because they contractually provide income for us. It, it's a contractual kind of a relationship. I work for you, you give me money. I produce well for you, you give me more money. Hopefully you give me a raise, right? This, this is everybody's... Uh, experience in, in the work zone. And, and most of us spend more time in, in the hours of day where we're working than any other place, right? So, so um, just think about that for a second, um, that you probably spend more time, more hours in your life working in your place of employment than any other space or place outside of sleeping. Um, so what, what do you think becomes one of the primary places of idolatry in our lives? See, we think it's areas like sex, like pornography and alcoholism, and like that's, once I get all that cleaned up, I'm probably pretty good, right? No, but you still work like 8 to 12 hours a day, so that's primary place of idolatry for us, and we, we miss it quite a bit. Someone might stick that in your head and think about that, too. Not uncommon for us to hear a person complain about their work environment, right? We've all done this. We all do this, and probably we'll do it a few more times. But we probably ought to be checked on this. Um, we start dreaming about a job with more opportunities, and that's not uncommon. Not uncommon to look across the aisle and see someone else doing the same kind of labor for a higher wage or better benefits. Wish that we had what that person had, right? <coughs> and it's, it's not necessarily wrong either, okay? It's not wrong to desire to make ends meet just a little bit better. That's not wrong. But Paul has even just said in previous verses that we talked about last week, 
in regards to a pastor's compensation. Labor deserves his, his wages, right? Labor deserves his wages. And uh, shouldn't muzzle an ox when he's trying to tread out grain. Don't make people work for just as much as you can possibly not pay them to do their job. That's, that's not an appropriate way for, for us, is it? In the workplace or in the church place, either. So, we see all that that Paul has been saying already, and we just see that I think that what Paul is after is helping people worship the same God together in holiness. Helping people not bring reproach upon the teaching of the gospel. So Paul is after something much bigger than benefits, right? He's after something much deeper than raising the minimum wage. Sure, we can talk about those things, but I don't, I don't think that's his primary concern. I think his, his concern comes right out of 1 Timothy 3.15, which I think is kind of the central thrust of the entire letter. 1 Timothy 3.15, I think he's concerned with how one ought to behave in the household of God. Interesting that Paul would be concerned with how people behave in the household of God, but usually the household of God is concerned with how people outside the household of God act. Right? Like We should be concerned with how people in the household of God behave. Why? Because he says in chapter 3, verse 15, that it's the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So in this immediate passage, you come back to chapter 6, 1 through 2, I think Paul is concerned that slaves might begin to dishonor their masters or disrespect their masters or undermine their masters or just generally act in ways that would be a massive disservice to their masters, miss the opportunity to love their masters, to do any of those things, right? To, do, um, to, 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 to dishonor someone, to disrespect someone, to undermine someone. To refuse to serve someone, to refuse to love someone, to do those things is to bring reproach on the God that you claim to follow and the gospel you claim to believe. Isn't it? Right? So as we conclude, that's what I want you to think about. I want you to stop and think about the God you claim to follow and the gospel you claim to believe. What does your attitude towards your boss convey about the God you claim to follow and the gospel you claim to believe? What do your words say? What do your actions say? What does your relationship with your boss or your relationship with your coworkers or your conversation at break time or lunch time? Think about all those things under the same relationship with your landlord or a bill collector. Right? What, what, what do all those things say about the God you trust in and the gospel you believe? Like I come back to the workplace again. We spend the majority of the, our time in the workplace, right? I, I kind of took that in a, in, a, in a direction that I think is helpful for us. Um, it wouldn't be a stretch to say I don't think that the workplace is probably the largest unreached mission field in America. I think. Probably the largest unreached mission field in America. You know, I do think the workplace is probably more populated with Christians than the average neighborhood is. So what does your presence in your workspace say about God and about the gospel? So when I think about our Father in heaven, 
Um, when I think about the message of the gospel, I'm reminded of how Jesus came to serve and not to be served. Came down from his throne in heaven to a sin-soaked earth so that he could do what? Wash the feet of rebels and make them into sons and daughters. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Amen, right? This is true of our Savior. Yet, even though He is that royal, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, what did He do? He laid down His ability to rule us through an iron scepter so that He could ransom us through His work at the cross. He was disrespected. He was rejected. He was abused. He was beaten. He was bloodied. He was humiliated. And he was murdered so that his enemies could become family. I'll give you this thought that came up in my head this week. Jesus literally came down here to become a slave so that sinful masters like us could benefit from his labor sacrifice. So we could benefit eternally. That's a crazy picture. He didn't whine about it. He didn't complain about it. He didn't show up late to the cross either. He knew exactly where he was headed, and he got there. For the joy that was set before him, he walked towards the cross. He set his face like flint. This is where I'm headed. What kind of a model and example do we have in our shepherd, our Savior? And that he would become enslaved in that way for you and I. When I think about how I honor and how I respect and how I serve and how I love my earthly masters, I recognize I don't get it straight um, often and I don't get it right. But when I think about that, then I think about this picture of my heavenly Father and the work that Jesus did at the cross. I'm then I'm motivated at that point not just to get like a, a better at being a bond servant. Like, that's not the message we walk out with. Like, go be a better Christian. Do these five things. Capiche? Right? Give yourself a pat on the back when you get it straight this week, too, so you can feel better about yourself. That's called the message of legalism, and it's stupid. It's not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of the gospel. Although, transformation does mean you get better. How about that for tension? Right? Not contradictory, but it is tension. This motivates me to continue to trust in Christ as his bondservant. And the reality is that all of us are bondservants, people around us. All of us have these relationships, hopefully not in the destructive sense of the slavery that we get in our heads that we've experienced here in America, um, but, but hopefully in, 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 in roles, healthy roles, like husband to wife, wife to husband, brother to sister, sister to brother, church member to church member. We are all called to serve each other by honoring each other, respecting each other, and loving each other well. That's a call that's on all of us. And here's the thing. Because I am a slave to Jesus who did all of this for me, and, and, and then even more, because of that picture of who Jesus is, I can be enslaved to anyone without actually being attached to anyone. A picture of what, what I think Luke said about Jesus. Though he was a servant of all, he was not attached to anyone. Like, in other words, what people did did not affect Jesus in a controlling sense. But in a sense, he placed himself 
in a place where he could be controlled by the someone. Fantastic picture because that's the Jesus I serve. That's the Jesus that you serve if you trust in him. Um, then you and I are both free. We're free eternally. And the power of the cross and the empty tomb then resides inside of you, which means you can be enslaved to anyone. You can respect them, honor them, love them, serve them, regardless of how bad they are. You see a picture of Jesus on the cross doing the same thing at that cross, beaten and bloodied, murdered for you. Let's pray. Father, as we close, ask God that your spirit would uh, continue to uh, move in our midst and that you would um, make the power of the cross and the empty tomb um, tangible and visible for us this morning. Um, Help us to trust in you. Thank you for coming and giving yourself as a ransom and a sacrifice at that cross for letting um, for letting your body be broken the way that it was and for letting your blood be poured out the way that it was so that we might have the opportunity to be saved. I pray that you would help us to rest there close our time in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.